0: I especially pray that this has been a time of drawing near to God. We're concluding our second week of prayer and fasting as a church. And last week I pointed out that God wants us to be successful both in the horizontal and in the vertical dimensions of life. And that is what constitutes real success, the kind that is fully satisfying. If you only have success in the horizontal dimension, we've all heard the stories. We all know the truth that money, sex, drugs, affairs, um, fame, fortune, pleasure, none of that is going to satisfy for very long. I'm going to admit something that you probably will not hear many pastors say. Success only in the vertical dimension is not going to be satisfying completely, and I want to tell you why. It's because God made you to have an impact you were created strategically by God to affect the world around you. And so if you get saved and move out on a desert island where you'll never be tempted and, you know what I mean, and, and never have to worry about people and get frustrated by Houston traffic and all that kind of stuff and, and that you spend your life there, you're going to find very quickly, that's not satisfying, you say, but it's just me and God. It can be you and God in the middle of a city too. So I want you to to understand that what God really wants and the reason you were not taken out of the world straight to heaven when you got saved, he left you here because we are to make an impact with our lives. And so the horizontal component is important, but so is the vertical component. It's the two of these working together that ultimately are satisfying. Amen. Remember what Jesus said? The man took his talent and hid it, and then he came, and the Lord said, what? He wasn't very complimentary to him, was he? He preserved what he had, but he didn't cause it to increase or grow. So he didn't use his life, because that's an analogy of the talents of your life, the giftings that God has placed within you. He didn't use those to make the world a better place, to teach others about God, And so God looked at him and said, "Mm, you came up short, wicked and slothful servant. Prayer and fasting are amazing keys to breakthroughs, both spiritually and in the natural world. Prayer and fasting not only impacts heaven, it will impact the world you live in right here. I promise you it will. Amen. And I hope that you've been participating in this with us. And I, I feel like awesome things are going to happen As a result of this season of seeking God, I do know that the greatest breakthroughs I've had in my life, and I've been in some situations where I needed them, I mean really needed them, just like you, I have watched incredible things occur, and they have occurred as a result of seasons of prayer and fasting. So let me just remind you that I've given you a number of different options as to how you can fast if you haven't joined in with us yet. There are different kinds of fasts that are mentioned even in the Bible. I was raised old school, and when they said fast, no food, no water. (laughs) Amen. And it didn't matter if you had a condition and needed medication, old school, no food, no water. Well, I wouldn't urge you to be that that. Hard on yourself if you have a situation that requires medication and that also requires that you take some food. There's the Daniel fast. You can fast also all day uh, until the evening if you wish to do it that way. A couple of days a week, you could miss a meal a day. Any way you want to do it, like that is fine, as you feel led of the Lord and as you, as your body is able to handle that, because. I tell you, if you've never fasted before, to jump off and have a 21-day fast right up front is not necessarily the easiest thing in the world you'll ever try to do. But I've also, in this present age, remember the Bible said, live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. I'm not living 2,000 years ago. I'm living in 2017. Amen. Amen. In this present world, there's some other ways you can also add to that fast. Try fasting social media, but all for 20 minutes a day, okay? That'd be one of the hardest fasts some of you've ever encountered in your life. Or do it like this. Try fasting TV. Or if you're a big sweet eater, try giving up sweets for 30 days. And I already mentioned the Daniel fast, which you can read about on the internet. It's It's a great and a healthy way to fast. And... And while we're doing this, we're not just focusing on God, but we continue to reach out to our community. Yesterday, there was a pop up mall here at the church distributing quality supplies, furniture, and other things. And they served, Pastor Irvin told me, over 1,200 families, 700 pre registered, and 400 more just walked in. Isn't that amazing? Mayor Sylvester Turner, our mayor, was here. Representative from Congressman Gene Green's office was here. The CEO of the Houston Area Urban League, Mr. Judson Robinson IV, was here. He and his office were instrumental in setting up the pop-up malls. There were five of them in our city. And they were selected on the basis of how effectively have these places or these churches been serving the community. And, of course, Christian Tabernacle has gotten a lot of attention And I thank you for the devotion and the sacrifice uh, and the time that you have volunteered to help others. And uh, there was an organization here yesterday. 32 volunteers, their name is Working Against Gravity. Don't you love that? That's a great name. And they worked all day long. The Houston Food Bank was here with three trucks of food, and they've been sending trucks every week, thanks to uh, one of our very own members, Rosario Garza, who has been instrumental in making that happen and works there. And uh, in addition, the sponsor for yesterday was Delivering Good. That's their name, Delivering Good. And they were in attendance uh, the board chairman Alan Ellinger and the president of Delivering Good, Lisa Gertwich, was here, and they did this uh, here, chose this selection, uh, this site, and it was selected, as I mentioned, because of the fact that we have been so deeply involved in helping our community, and so I want to thank you for causing the name of Christ to be exalted, and this body of Christ to be effective. And doing its task and its assignment in the city. Because you remember when I said horizontal and vertical? Now you see what I'm talking about. Some churches said, oh, don't have time for all that. We're going to just pray. Yeah. That's not the hands and feet of Jesus when you handle it like that. And you need to be ministering to people. Senator Sylvia Garcia has given us 200 mobile phones to distribute to families, and and it's just impacting to me. And right in the middle of all of this, life goes on with the church and the normal things that happen. Faye Franklin's husband James had his home going on Friday, and she's here this morning, and that just blesses me so much. And and others, we've had other funerals just recently. Pastor Donnie and his team are out there with a uh, support group for people that are facing cancer, just an outstanding ministry. I read the statistic that it's almost 4 out of 10 will now get cancer in their lifetimes. 4 out of 10, 40% and uh, crazy. But let's get into the word of the Lord this morning. Somebody just look at your neighbor and say, let's, let's hear the word of the Lord today. Would you do that? Acts 2.42, New Living Translation, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. Psalm 16.11, you will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We have been talking about the preciousness of the presence of God. The preciousness of the presence of God. I'm going to tell you something. Everything in the 30 years that I have been here as your pastor teaching you has been important or I wouldn't have taken the time to teach it. Whether it's finances, emotions. Whether it's your personal devotions. Whether it's your relationships, your ministry. Whether it's the word of God and its value to our lives. The promises of the Bible. The principles of success that are taught in the Bible, honoring God, all of those are important. But I want you to listen because I'm going to tell you something straight up, and I'm not going to hesitate when I say it, that what I'm going to talk about today, in my opinion, is the single most important thing that I've discussed with you as your pastor. Because if you ever master this, the rest of it becomes easy. All the revelations that I've shared with you, and there have been a ton of them, all of the messages that I've communicated truth and honored God by sharing with you, I think among those that what I'm going to talk about today is for believers. And I'm not hesitating when I say it. I want you to listen. One of the single most significant things you will ever learn to do after you become a child of God The purpose of this series is to teach us something that I believe Christians once not only knew, but they practiced every moment of their lives. When you study the writings of believers through the centuries, from the days of the earliest believers up until about 50 to 75 years ago, you will see that it was a common experience. It was what happened to believers naturally. To abide in the presence of God. That today, not so much. Recent times, believers have largely lost the art and therefore the enormous benefit of practice, practicing or abiding in God's presence. I want you to pray, Father, because I really do believe that this is so key and fundamental to our relationship with you and our ability to achieve success in the vertical dimension, but also the way it impacts even the horizontal dimensions of our lives, I'm going to ask that you really, really speak to us today. Really speak to us today, Lord. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. I'm going to slow this down, and I'm going to teach today. I I, I laugh when I say that because I was raised at a time... When, if somebody wasn't a very good preacher, they were called a teacher. <laughs> and a preacher was somebody that raised his voice and got all excited and communicating, got you all revved up. Well, however you feel about that, I'm going to teach. Amen. <laughs> because I need to get this across. You might not realize it, but it's actually very easy to forget things that were once considered very important and even. A common part of our lore. When I mentioned a while ago that believers have lost the art of practicing the presence of God, you might ask, how can that possibly be? But it's actually very easy to forget things that were once significant and important. That's actually one reason that I love the etymology of words. I'm a communicator. And I have to communicate truth. And so that means that my stock and trade is are words. Primarily the word of God. But if I just get up here and read you the Bible and don't expand and expound upon it, exegete the passage, then it might not be nearly as beneficial. But I love the etymology of the origin of words that we use daily and whose roots we have forgotten. We use words every day that we no longer even remember where they came from. And so the meaning of those words has largely been lost. And the same thing is true with many of the common expressions and phrases that we use frequently. For example, did you ever wonder where the phrase it's raining cats and dogs came from? How appropriate is that considering what's going on outside? Amen. Years ago, centuries ago, they didn't have nice homes like we did, or like we do now, forgive me, we do at the present time. Even if you don't live in a nice place, trust me when I tell you it's far, far better than what the average person lived in four or 500 years ago. The average person lived in a thatched hut and the thatch would almost come all the way down to the ground. Underneath were wide beams, and of course, thatch leaked. Thatch is the thick straw that's piled high with the beams underneath. And right in the middle of this was the little round circle for the fire. And then at the opening, there was a place for, at the top, there was a place for the smoke to to escape. And so the only place for animals to get warm was up on the beams. And so all the cats and the other small animals, including the mice and the bugs, lived in the roof. True. This is all true. When it rained, the thatch leaked, and the beams became slippery, and sometimes the animals would slip and fall off the beams. Therefore, the saying developed, it's raining cats and dogs. That's where they came from. There was nothing to stop things from falling into the house. This especially posed a real problem at night in the bedroom where bugs and other things kept dropping on you while you were sleeping. That could have a pretty catastrophic effect on your ability to get rest at night. Hence, they developed beds with big posts, one on each corner, with a sheet draped across the top to afford some protection from what was falling. That's how canopy beds came into existence. Take the phrase, sleep tight. Back in the 1500s, most people slept on the floors. But some actually could put a frame together, and then they would tie ropes across the frame, and they would get a mattress stuffed with straw. And in times, the ropes would stretch, and they'd have to tighten them. Hence the saying, sleep tight. And later, because of the problems with dirty mattresses, it became sleep tight and don't let the bed bugs bite. That's where they came from. Floors in poor homes were simply plain dirt. Only the wealthy had something other than dirt. Therefore, the same dirt poor. The wealthy had slate floors that would get slippery in the winter when they would track in the rain or the snow and it would melt. So they spread thresh, which is straw, on the floor to keep, help them keep their footing. And as the winter wore on, they added more thresh and more thresh until when you opened the door... Guess what happened? The thresh would spill outside, blocking the door from closing, and the heat from inside would escape. They learned that they could put a piece of wood across the entranceway to keep the thresh from spilling outside. Hence, a threshold. Years ago, they used to drink lead. Uh, they used to use lead cups to drink ale and whiskey. The combination of alcohol and lead <laughs> could sometimes knock out the imbibers for a couple of days at a time. Someone walking along the road who found them would think they were dead and they would be taken and prepared for burial. This is all true. Of course, they didn't embalm bodies back then and there were no funeral homes, so they would take the body, lay it out on the kitchen table at home for a couple of days, and the family would gather around and eat and drink waiting to see if the person would wake up. Hence the custom of holding a wake. Didn't know that, did you? England is an old country and is actually quite small, uh, comparatively speaking. They like to bury their dead in cemeteries located near churches where they would await the resurrection. So long ago, churches started running out of places to bury people. Their little plot of ground, the cemetery would fill up. So what they actually started doing was digging up the coffins, taking the bones to a bone house, and then reusing the grave. When opening the coffins, they discovered something startling. About one out of every 25 had scratch marks on the lid where the person had actually been buried alive. So they began to tie a string on the wrist of the corpse, run it up through the coffin and through the ground to a bale. Someone would have to sit out in the graveyard all night for the first few nights after a burial to listen in case the bale would begin to ring. Hence the term, the graveyard shifts. And the phrase that somebody could be saved by the bell. And the person that was saved by the bell was a dead ringer. If we can forget the origin of our own language, words we use every day, It's no stretch to believe we can forget things once known by believers about the spirit dimension as well. You might ask why believers have lost the awareness of God's presence. What made that happen? And I believe the answer has largely to do with many, many things, many things that are constantly pulling on us and demanding our attention and these really fast-paced lives that we all live. Did you know that our great, 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 great grandfathers 150 years ago, most of them never traveled over 75 miles from where they were born their entire life? Over 75 miles. Some of you travel that in a single day in this city getting to and from your job when you add up the mileage that you're commuting. Some of us travel much more than that. I travel a million miles a year just in airlines. You see... Out in my parking space, there's a loaner car because the car Jerry and I are driving is rolling over 200,000 miles and got a little problem they're fixing right now. Well, in this city you drive, and I realize that Houston is bigger than most, 120 miles they claim from one side of the suburbs to the other, but... We drive a lot and then you throw in for vacation. You might hop a plane and fly to California or to Wisconsin to visit relatives or you might even go to a Caribbean island on a cruise or you might fly to Hawaii for a week. We travel a lot. We're busy like you can't imagine. And even more, with all these modern labor-saving devices, I personally think that instead of setting us free, they've actually enslaved us. Any of you old enough to remember what I remember? My grandmother had one day a week as wash day and washed out clothes by hand. Amen. And then when I grew, as I grew up with my grandmother and then my stepmother, I remember them hanging the clothes out on the line to dry. We didn't have any clothes dryers. Well, today we got clothes dryers and washing machines and microwaves and toasters and dishwashers and every other kind of appliance you can imagine. And guess what? We still do not have any time. When I was growing up, without all of this, people still could sit on the front porch and did so every evening and spend hours talking. Not watching TV, talking. Amen. And the neighbors would walk by and they would stop and they would do what is called they would come sit a spell. Amen. Not anymore. <laughs> All these labor-saving devices we have, we don't have any time for that any longer. Emails, mobile phones, computers, internet and the like, and what about TV? The average American spends five hours and four minutes every day, seven days a week. That's the average, watching TV. Social media, four hours and 42 minutes a day on their mobile phones. Between the two, that's nine hours and 46 minutes of your day right there. Add eight hours a day for your job, eight hours a day sleeping and well, you get the picture, somebody's using their phone or something on the job (laughs) too and (laughs) employer's not getting all of the eight hours. I just imagine what would happen if believers learned to practice the presence of God again. I just imagine, I wonder what would happen. Number one, there's no doubt that we would begin to experience greater peace and joy in our own hearts. Distress, stress, unhappiness. Those are the watchwords of this modern hour we live in. We have everything and still people are empty. Amen. You know why? Why? Because I want you to understand that there's no experience known to man that will even come close to the joy you find in God. Not drugs, not illicit sex, not money, not fame, pleasure. Nothing the world offers will come close. Isaiah 26.3, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Or as the New Living Translation says, whose mind is fixed on you. Believers don't have peace because their minds are not fixed on God. And they don't have joy because Psalm 16 and 11 says, in your presence is fullness of joy. And if you're not abiding in the presence of the Lord, all this other stuff out there, it's temporary. It's like eating junk food. It doesn't really fill you up. Second, we would have greater victory in our personal lives, if we would once again learn how to practice the presence of the Lord. Because as I mentioned to you earlier in this series, having Christ with us helps us realize that he's not only beside us, but he's actually observing our behavior. Remember the lady that just put in two mites and all the rich people that came in? The scripture said Jesus was watching that. Well, he's watching everything we do. used to sing a little song when we were kids in Sunday school. Anybody remember? Be careful little ears what you hear. Careful little hands what you do. For the Father up above, remember that? He sees everything. Amen. And I've mentioned to you that it's a whole lot like driving down the freeway when you're late for an appointment, tempted to speed, and then you look up in the rearview mirror and see the car right behind you has a light bar on top. You're not tempted to speed anymore. I took care of that temptation. Having God with you helps resolve so many things. Third, our prayer lives would be so much more effective Listen, John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Our prayer lives would be so much more impacting. And number four, it goes back to what I said earlier in this series. If we learn to practice the presence of God, there's a principle. And that principle is this, what you focus on and think about and are aware of is what you project Remember, I spoke about social contagion. It is a, a phenomenon that has been studied and recognized in, in research uh, uh, university, in re- universities and in, in their research projects that, that what you're thinking about, you actually project that. If you're sad and you're depressed and this is on your mind, you project it. But if you're filled with joy, you project that. But if you're thinking about God, you project Christ. And there's some people that will never go to church or hear a sermon. And you can take church to them. Last week I mentioned that in Psalm 16, David gives us 12 steps that will help us abide in the presence of God. We're using these as prayer points during this month of prayer and fasting as we do our daily devotions in our homes with our families and with our small groups. And don't forget that we're also doing communion in our homes each day as a part of our family devotions. The word communion actually means fellowship, and this is the way it works. That as we are getting together with our families and we're taking the word of God and these prayer points and we're explaining what they mean, we're reading from the Bible, and then we're doing communion, that we're not only fellowshipping with one another, we're fellowshipping with him too. Amen. Amen. Last week I talked about two of the 12 principles, and I want to give you some more today. In Psalm 16 and 1. Let's go back and review the two that I discussed. David acknowledged his dependency upon God. Say that. David acknowledged his dependency upon God. And he also talked about the very, very real sense of security he found in God. 16, Psalm 16 and 1. Keep me safe, O God, for I have come to you for refuge. Wow. Keep me safe. I depend on you, Lord. I can't make it by myself. You're my refuge. And I realize that it flies in the face of this whole Anthony Robbins thing That, and no disrespect to him because he has some great teaching that are biblically based in case you didn't know it. But this whole thing about I'm autonomous and I can make it and I can grip my teeth and I I can set a goal and, and the law of attraction and all of this kind of stuff. Look, I want to tell you You need God in your life. And one of the most blessed days you will ever live is the day that you wake up and say, Lord, I depend on you. Amen. Amen. Acknowledge your dependency upon God. And in verse 2, the second principle is David declared his submission to God and then proclaimed his conviction that even in his best moments, he could never be as good to himself. As God was to him, listen at his words. I said to the Lord, you are my master. Every good thing I have comes from you. I said to the Lord. I didn't just say it to others. I said it to God. I took time to tell God, you are my what? Not my leader, not my teacher. You're my master. Oh, somebody in the building say amen. Acknowledge your dependency upon God, but then also declare that he is your master and declare to him your submission to him. People struggle with that. You say, how do I do that? Because I have some issues in my life that I'm still struggling with. Well, first of all, you tell him again, Lord, I need you. I, need, I can't make it by myself. I can't build this business by myself. I, I I can't make a relationship work. I need your help every day of my life. You're the vital component that I don't want to have to live without. Amen. Amen. And then you tell him, Lord, I'm struggling with some issues, but you're my master. Help me to submit. Wow. When you begin to pray for God to help you, he hears you. Now let's go through the rest of these verses and talk about the other 10 steps The third thing David declared was that his heroes were people of God. He refused to allow himself, this is what he meant, to be influenced by people who were not committed to godly ideals and values. Look at verse 3. The godly people in the land are my true heroes. I take pleasure in them. Do you know one of the things that is a phenomenon of the age in which we live is that people have selected as their heroes individuals who are doing everything but what they should be doing to build a godly and good society. I'm going to preach better than you're, you're responding right now. We make everybody our heroes. As long as they got some money, got some fame, that's my hero. You know, rock star, put the poster on on the, the, the wall, you know, and they're living horrific lives, terrible lives, sports figures. We idolize and emulate them just on the basis of their skill. Look, it takes more to be a man than just having certain skills. I want to ask you, who are your heroes? Who are your heroes? And why is this important? It's really important because the next thing you need to ask is, if I set people as my heroes, I'm setting an example before my children, who will their heroes be? I realize that in today's world, that because of this whole social phenomenon of money is what matters and fame is what matters. And I'm not knocking money and I'm not knocking fame. You got something you don't want, give me the, give it to me. I'll put it to good use. Amen. I'm serious. So I'm not knocking money. Make all you can. Amen. I want you to be hugely successful. That's the horizontal component. But the vertical component is this. You'll meet a lot of people in this world that are very successful on the horizontal level, but they're miserable on the inside. They go from one broken relationship to another. Hello. Lives empty and devoid of meaning. Look, that's not how you want to live your life. And I realize that because of this whole phenomenon, it's even infected, and that's a good word, church leadership. And we hear about pastors and clergy who are into this whole fame thing. Preachers of L.A. kind of a deal. That's the most nauseating program that's ever come on television. Amen. Flowning cars and affairs and claiming to be a part of clergy. Amen. And I realize that there are pastors out there that charge, and I'm not making this up, $100,000 to come preach one sermon. You didn't know that ministry could be that rewarding, did you? All you got to do is get a good social media following, get a few books out there, get interviewed a time or two by Oprah, and you're on your way. If that's what matters to you. And you know, as a result of that, people have a tendency to think this is what the church is all about. I told you early about serving the community the church has gotten away from some things that are really, really important and that are valuable and necessary. We have to get back to serving the community. And this, this horrific catastrophe called Harvey has helped us keep that more clearly in focus. It's brought it back before our attention again. That We're not only called to serve God, but to serve our fellow man. And I, I, I don't thank God for the hurricane, but I thank God that God's got our attention focused back on the things that really matter. Love him and love your neighbor. Those are the two major principles of Christianity. Amen. But I need you to know that just like in any profession, whether it's police officers or doctors or attorneys or school teachers or coaches or business people, even in the clergy or in among Christians, you're going to find a few bad apples. I like to think that because I know so many pastors that the percentage is much smaller than in the church, but guess who gets all the press? It's the bad ones. And it's real easy to go home and have barbecued church member for for lunch on Sunday. Fried pastor for dinner. Here's my point. Who are you setting up as heroes? Who are you causing the distrust and disbelieve in the very people that that are the people of God? What you need to do is tell them, look, there's some bad apples in every bunch. Amen. Don't get your eyes on man. Keep them on God. Keep them on God. Yeah, keep them on God. But let your heroes be people that stand for something. Stand for the right things. Stand for godly values. This is really, really important. If your teenage child's hero is Miley Cyrus, you're in trouble. Or Katy Perry. I'm not knocking people. Or Beyonce or Jay-Z or any of them out there. We need to have godly heroes. And this is literally what David said. The godly people in the land are my true heroes. I take pleasure in them, in them. But here's what you're fighting against. The culture of our time doesn't want to acknowledge the people of God. Just this week, there was a big deal in the news that I read about. They're removing a cross to veterans in a veteran cemetery because that's a violation of somebody's um, First Amendment right. I kind of doubt anybody in the cemetery really feels bad about it. I don't think you will find their name on the petition. Amen. All this stuff, and I'm not getting into the politics of it because, you know, I don't like all of this constantly that's going on that we hear these days. Just noise, noise, noise. Noise, blame, 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 blame. I, I don't even listen to that. I, I, I'm not going to get involved in it. So they're talking about whether you should kneel at an NFL game or not. That's the big controversy that's constantly before us, right? Anybody remember a guy named Tim Tebow? A Christian who would kneel before the game just to honor God, and they thought, "Oh, that's terrible, that's terrible. Terrible. Trust me when I tell you the average person in this world is not going to help you make those who stand for values be your heroes. It's a decision you have to make. Don't go with the crowd. Hello, somebody. I said don't go with the crowd. Amen. Amen. Number four, David refused to be infatuated with ungodliness. He acknowledged, rather, The harm caused by participating in and in pursuing the wrong things. Look at verse 4. Troubles multiply for those who chase after other gods. I will not take part in their sacrifices or blood or even speak the names of their gods. That's pretty heavy. When you choose to do the wrong things and feed the wrong appetites, that of our own flesh, it will always cause you to experience trouble. In fact, instead of your troubles just increasing, this verse says they multiply. They multiply in number, complexity, and severity. The more you give in to pursuing the things that we put in place of God in our lives, the more trouble it causes you. And David said, I'm not going to go after other gods. There's only one God that I'm going to have. Amen. And I will not take part in the sacrifices of blood or even speak the names of their gods. Well, we don't offer sacrifices of blood anymore, but we do give our blood, sweat, and tears to the wrong thing. Amen. David said, I'm not going to talk about stuff like that. I'm not going to get involved in it. And this is really insightful because what you talk about has a profound effect on the way you think. Amen. And every one of us want to be accepted. That's one of the most profound and basic needs that we as a human being have. To be accepted. To be liked by those around us. Every one of us want to fit in. Every study that's ever been done on tribes or what it it takes to fit into a social group, the mores, the taboos. Every study that's ever been done points out how difficult it is for someone to be able to say no to what the group they are with is saying yes to. Which is why I keep saying always be careful who you let get close to you in terms of speaking influence into your life. Amen. The way I figure (laughs) it, you don't like me, you got a problem. I'm a nice guy. I don't need everybody's approval, and neither do you. And if I got to jump through certain hoops to meet your approval, I'm just not going to do that. Because I made it all these years without getting your approval. You understand what I mean? And I figure I can go a few more if necessary. Let me really make it plain. Can I go ahead? You don't mind? Some young lady, come on now. You know where I'm going with that. You got to fit in. Everybody does it, not me. Keep your life pure and clean. Don't go after the wrong things and then a little bit further down the road realize the huge price you had to pay to gain acceptance into a group that it wasn't even worth being a part of. And come on, guys. All of us like to laugh, joke around, And there are some jokes out there. Can can I, can I just go old school on you right now? There are some jokes that are just funny. But they can be dirty too. And David said this. I'm not taking part in their sacrifices of blood. And I'm not going to speak the names of their gods. Sometimes to take a stand is the hardest thing to do in the world because you want the acceptance of the group. But you have to let them know, I've got something so much better. I've got a God that's better than all of this, and he's the one that I'm serving and and pleasing. Amen. Let me move on. Fifthly, David made God his highest joy and didn't allow anything else to rival his affection for God. He realized that the things of life are fleeting and that only God could sustain him. So this is what he said in verse 5. Lord, you alone are my inheritance. My cup of blessing, you guard all that is mine. Did you see that? He didn't just say you're my inheritance. He said you alone are my inheritance. Again, I'm sharing with you some things that I feel like are extraordinarily important to whether or not. You have success in the vertical as well as the horizontal dimension of your life. And here is a principle that I hope you will never forget. You should never allow anything you enjoy to come anywhere near the joy or the love you have for God. Amen. Never love anything so much that it even gets close to rivaling your devotion to God. I don't care how much you love it. Hello, somebody. You say, but I love my family. That's okay. They're an extension of God. That's God's love. But when you start start talking about sports, and I love this, and I love that program, and all of that, and then we're going to see whether it really matters to you or if God matters because it starts cutting into your devotional life. I tell God all the time, Lord, never allow me to elevate anything in my life that rivals my affection for you. I want you to be my chief delight, the fairest of 10,000. I want you to be the lily of the valley, the rose of Sharon. Amen. Nothing I've ever encountered in life has been as satisfying as what I have found in you. And you're saying that's because you're a pastor. wasn't always. Go figure that out. Used to make my living years ago in nightclubs playing rock music and all the other kind of stuff and blues that that went along with that. But I want to tell you, that world is illusionary. The world that we live in is temporal. And if you allow yourself to get sucked into a devotion to things, rather, uh, I, I hate to do this, but I just got to to make it plain. I'll, you know, I, I'm at a point in my life where I don't love sports like I used to, but some of us really love sports, and I was there. And then I finally decided I was going to wait until after the World Series was over to decide which team I was rooting for, amen. <laughs> Got tired of being disappointed all the time. You know what I'm talking about? Wait till after the championship and the NFL is over. Then ask me who my favorite team is, who I was rooting for. That's kind of like politics. Have a bump, two b- bumper stickers. One for the opponent and the other for the opposite side. Go put them on the day after the election. Amen. I don't want anything in this world to rival my love for God. Nothing. I tell him all the time, Lord, you're the best thing that's ever happened in my life. And if you're here today and you don't know the Lord and you've never found that level of devotion in God, take it from somebody that's been where you're at. I'm not just talking preacher talk right now. I'm talking from experience. Job asked the question, is there any taste in the white of an egg? There's nothing more bland than egg whites, nothing. You've got to get into t- the center of it, you know what I mean, where the taste is at. Oh, I know you can fry them up in bacon. They make bacon, <laughs> bacon grease will make anything taste good, even an egg white. <laughs> Saw this on a T-shirt. That's too much bacon, said nobody ever. That's right, But generally speaking, boil an egg and just eat the white. You might as well be eating plastic for all the taste. And as long as you live on the outside, the periphery of a relationship with God, and you don't make him the core of your life, there is no taste in that. But when he becomes your chief delight, when he becomes the joy of your soul, When you wake up in the morning and you're thinking about him and you go to bed at night and he's the last thing on your mind. When you're living in the abiding presence of God, it's an experience that nothing else, nothing else equals, amen. You alone are my inheritance and my cup of blessing. You're my source. And there's something that happens when you make God your chief delight. He guards all that is yours. When he is here and everything else you have is here, he guards it. But when he is here and everything else is here, he doesn't guard it anymore. And this is one reason people have lost businesses or careers. Because they put stuff in front of God that they never should have put in front of God. The sixth thing, and I close with this. David recognized and confessed that God was the source of the good things in his life. Listen to this. The land you have given me is a pleasant land. What a wonderful inheritance. He didn't say the land I earned or worked for. He said the land you gave me. The apostle Paul asked, what do you have that you did not receive? You say, but I worked hard for it. Yeah, but just remember there's a lot of folk that worked hard that didn't get to where you're at. I took risk. Other people did too and lost everything. What you need to understand is that God is the source of all of the good things in your life. Amen. Have you realized that yet? That every good thing in your life comes from God. This is what James said, 1 in 17. Every, oh God, have mercy, every, not some of them, but every good gift. And every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Every good gift. God's been good to me. Has it been good to anybody else in this building? I stand here today a blessed man because God has smiled on me. God has been good to me. Have I been through some rough places? You better know I have because I live in a broken, fallen world. But look at me. I want you to understand. Listen, all of the good times outweigh the bad times. God has been good to me. Somebody ought to praise him right now. I want you to say it, the land you have given me. The land you gave me. Did I have to work for it? Yes. Did I have to fight a few fights to get there? Yes. Did I have to roll up my shirt sleeves? Yes. But even all of that having been said and done, I wouldn't be where I'm at right now had it not been for God who smiled on me. Been good to me, Lord. Bless his name. Bless his name. Bless his name. Can somebody praise him? Bless his name 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 I love you Jesus thank you Jesus thank you I could preach on that a while because in this step remain standing in this verse I also hear something else I hear the words of a man who's focused on blessings rather than problems The land you've given me is a pleasant land. Where there's some rocks in the field, yeah. Where there's some hills to climb, yeah. Where there's some valleys to go through, yeah. But the land you've given me is a pleasant land. What are you focusing on? The good things or the bad things. Verse number seven: God sought for God, David sought for God to direct his life. I will bless the Lord who guides me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. How does God guide you? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I want to say it again. You can get too little of the word of God, but you will never get too much of it. And I'll tell you something else. When you read the word of God or hear it preached, it will often conflict with some of your opinions something inside the flesh will rebel that's actually a sign that god's talking to you and one of the most important things you can ever do is you can say when that occurs god i choose to believe what you said rather than what this flesh wants me to believe because the enemy is always trying to chip away at your faith and number eight david practiced the presence of god I know the Lord, he said, is always with me. Say that, I know the Lord is always with me. One more time, I know the Lord. I will not be shaken for He is right beside me. Our communion workers are coming now, the communion ministry, and they're going to prepare and we're going to go to the Lord's table together. Years ago, I mentioned this, but there was a movie, if I remember correctly, it was just simply named Bear, B-E-A-R, and it told the story of a, an orphan bear cub, and this bear cub is going through the wilderness, its mother's been killed, it's just a little guy, and it's been, you, you can come forward, members of the communion ministry, come take your places please, and ushers, go ahead and help them get set up, and I'll just talk while they're doing that. And there was a mountain lion, a cougar, that was trying to to catch that little bear. Just a little guy, like I said, and defenseless. And that mountain lion finally got that little bear trapped where it couldn't go any further. And then that little bear, its bear instinct, (laughs) who it was, rose up inside of it. And when you get the Word of God in you, it puts a divine instinct within you. And that cougar is coming to, to kill that little bear. And you know what that little bear did? It did what bears do. It stood on its little tiny hind legs and went, Arr! And that cougar turned, tucked its tail between its legs and ran. And the little guy's like, ooh, that's pretty good. What he didn't see was the gigantic grizzly that rose up in the bushes just behind